You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, episode 71, with Dr. Rosemary Ingleton. You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful Black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. Hello, trailblazers. For those of you in the United States, this episode actually goes live on Memorial Day 2017. And I hope that wherever you're listening today to this episode, you maybe are in your car, could be in the gym, maybe you're on a walk. I know several of our listeners who often consume our content while taking a morning or afternoon walk or a run, or maybe today you're at the beach. Wherever you are, I hope that you're able to find a point of connection with our guest today. And it's my hope and my heart, right, that you're inspired by what you hear, so much so that you begin to take action on blazing your trail this week. So our featured guest today is Dr. Rosemary Ingleton. She's often referred to as the dermatologist of the stars. She's an authority in general and cosmetic dermatology and has a unique combination of skill, expertise, humanity, and artistry that's positioned her as the go-to authority in all things dermatology in the media as well as in the New York City social circles and industries such as fashion, beauty, music, and the arts. And she's featured regularly on television shows such as Good Morning America, Dr. Oz, The Today Show, and so much more. You'll find her in magazines and all that jazz, right? In today's interview, we had a great discussion. We talked about her early years growing up in Jamaica, which was exciting for me, right? I just found so many connection points with her story. Uh, We also had a terrific talk about her early years as a business owner, and she shares a wealth of wisdom for business owners and entrepreneurs. And, you know, we finished up our chat talking about her lifestyle, and, and she shared some of the tips to begin to take care of our skin. If this is your first time listening or your 71st time listening, we'd like to welcome you into our Trailblazer family. And, you know, as a Trailblazer yourself, I'd love to invite you to help us get the word out to more future trailblazers by logging into Apple Podcasts right now and leaving a quick rating and comment for the podcast. Doing that actually helps the trailblazer community to grow and become noticed by others who want to join this movement. We've got the full show notes for today's episode up right now. You can hop on over to tbpod.com and see all the resources listed there. That's it. Let's get set to receive some mission fuel from today's trailblazer, Dr. Rosemary Ingleton. Enjoy. On today's episode, I am overjoyed to have a conversation with Dr. Rosemary Ingleton, otherwise known as the dermatologist to the stars, Dr. Ingleton. Welcome and thanks for joining us as our featured trailblazer today. Thank you for having me, Stephen. So you and I were introduced to each other by Keisha Smith, Jeremy, who was our Mm -hmm. featured guest back on episode 61 and is now the podcast number one most downloaded episode. And so before we even got going, I know you're listening and I just want to say, Keisha, thank you so much for connecting us to Dr. Ingleton. Thank Uh, you, Keisha. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you and I first spoke a couple months ago, and I was mm-hmm. so happy just to be talking with you. And then I realized you're Jamaican, and it just really made mm. the conversation one I wanted that much more. And, <laughs> you know, you've, you've shared that you were born and raised in Jamaica. So let's maybe chat about your background a bit and growing up there. And maybe if you want to tell us about your family and some of your fondest childhood memories. Well, I definitely was born in Jamaica. I was born at my house, actually, in St. Andrew. And I went to all of my elementary education in Jamaica, you know, did a little, you know, the all-age school, the typical all-age school when I was uh, about five or six years old, and eventually went on to a public primary school in Pembroke Hall. Then I took an examination, which was the common entrance exam at the time, and I was only 10 years old. I wasn't supposed to pass. They were just letting me do it because of where my birthday fell. And guess what? I passed. Nice. And I was off to high school <laughs> at the jolly age of 11. So um, where did you attend high school? I went to Woolmers. I got, at that time, they considered, you know, you get a full scholarship or a half scholarship. Right. And I got a full scholarship. And it was very exciting and very unexpected. And at Wilmer's, I, you know, they, they have you choose your, your stream. You have to choose either the art stream or the science stream. So having been told when I was seven years old by my father that, you know, he liked the sound of Dr. Ingleton, <laughs> that was in my head. <laughs> and that was my introduction to even thinking about being a physician. I decided I would do the science stream. And I was, mm. you know, a good student. I was pretty much an A student all the way through. Not that it was easy, but I was able to get really great grades throughout. And by the time I was 15, I was graduating high school, Wow, which is crazy. That's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I shared a similar trait, you know, having left Jamaica at 16, but I also heard that you have a passion for the arts, right? And alongside being a thespian also, you studied dance and sang in your school theater productions and your school choir. That right? Yeah, because you know I, I'm I was Jamaican then, and I'm Jamaican now. You can't just have one job. <laughs> so I was not only a student; I was also starting at age seven. I started studying dance at the School of Dance nice. in Kingston, studying ballet and all the modern techniques. And of course, I performed with the School of Dance. I was never actually in the NDTC because I was a bit young. Right. But whatever junior companies they had, I would always participate in that. And in my school, we had um, a very active choir, which was oftentimes paired with the uh, high school, like George's and Wilmer's Boys School. We would do things, productions together. Right. Usually those operettas, you know, the Mikado and HMS Pinafore and all of that. Nice. So I was honing my acting and singing skills then. <laughs> and of course, because that wasn't enough, I was in the school choir and, you know, I swam on the school's team, nice. you know, the high school swim team. I was like doing everything and still maintaining an A average. I don't know how I did it, but I just love everything, you know. So the arts in specific were part of my, my roots, even as a, as a young woman. Nice. A young, a young girl, I should say. And I was hoping that I would be able to continue doing the arts and the sciences for the rest of my life because, you know, why not? Right. I personally couldn't hold, hold a tune to, to save my life, but I, yeah. I, too was, I, I did acting and, and dance um, mm-hmm. actually in Kathy Levy's um, Little People 
and Teen Players Club. All right. And many of those went on to perform internationally, you know, but I performed on stage alongside Charles Hyatt in my first onstage All performance. Right. And so I truly have a love for the arts and, and theater as well. Oh, so. yes. So the only thing I hold against you is that you're a Woolmerian, you know, I'm a Georgian. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know what, we did, we did, we did productions with Georges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. With the, our choirs kind of joined each other to do, well, they auditioned amongst our choirs to find up the actors for the various theater productions that we did mutually. Nice. So it's almost like instead of Woolmer's being our brother school, Georges was more like our brother school for a lot of the years. Great. So at what age did you actually end up leaving Jamaica? Right after I turned 16. Okay. So there was graduation. I was still 15. And then I went on. Actually, I hung around, and I call it hanging around, literally, (laughs) for six months between graduation and December of that year. I did um, lower six. Right. Or commercial six, actually. Which I don't know. Do they still have that in high school there? No, because <laughs> I, know, I, I did the exact same thing you did. <laughs> the exact same thing. I Well, not in the sense that I finished high school and I was 16 when I graduated, but I mm-hmm. left the day after. I went to Florida on a summer break and never came back. And I also had that six-month lull oh. before starting college. <laughs> so I started college January after. Yeah, that's, that's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I came up to the U.S. on on Boxing Day. That's right. a very you know memorable day for me, and um, no plans. I mean, like mother was working. What every Jamaican woman who comes to the, to New York does, they work in in other people's homes. Right. You know that had not been her background in Jamaica. She was you know she worked in the factory kind of setting as a supervisor running plants and stuff mm-hmm. but when she came to the u.s they don't they don't care about what you did in jamaica they just want to take you back to elementary you know do you have papers do you have certificates right. well you don't have certificates okay you get to the back of the line so you know my mom worked as a nanny luckily for an amazing family an iraqi family that she got lucky enough to be associated with and they facilitated a lot of the things that happened for me coming mm. up. I came up in, the, like I said, around Boxing Day, and by January I was in school. Wow! But and all of that within three weeks was taken care of because we had no plan. I just came up, and when you come, then we'll figure it out. And right. that's what we did. We went over to the school with my papers, and they looked at me and said, "No, no, 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 no! You can't come to college. You're only sixteen. <laughs> yeah." Yeah. Show us some documents. And you're from the Caribbean. Oh, please. So lucky for us, I had all of my O-levels. I had my eight O-levels. Nice. <laughs> I just showed it off to them and, you know, showed I had a certificate of graduated high school. And I so said, so done. I was in. Nice. Did you um, always have, have a dream? I know things kind of worked out through mom, but did you always have a dream being in high school of moving to the U.S.? I did not initially have the dream, but as things were getting tougher and tougher in the late 70s in Jamaica, I realized that, actually not even just because it was getting tougher and tougher, but I just realized that having been born into a family that was not a family of means, we were basically lower middle class, both my parents were factory workers, they basically, you know, just saw that I was young and talented and smart and like a go-getter kind of kid who could do any old thing, and I would just feel blended in anywhere I went. They were driving that dream, you know, to make me shoot for the stars, basically. And I'm driven anyway. And having them put that idea in my head, I thought, you know, that kind of sounds good. Mm -hmm. And I was then driven to 
try to figure out how I could get to that spot. But I realized that if I stayed in Jamaica, I probably would not have been afforded the same opportunities because I don't think we could have, first of all, afforded for me to go to the schools, you know, the higher learning schools. And I don't think that in terms of competition, I mean, at that time, I don't know if it's still the same way, but if you want to go to medical school, you would go to UWE in in Kingston, right? If you want to go to law school, you would go to Trinidad. And it was just spread out that way. So you're competing with the entire Caribbean all the brilliant people across the Caribbean. So I thought the odds were sort of against me, but you know, I would have challenged myself anyway, but the the odds were greater for me to come to the U S and the fact that things were kind of rough in Jamaica around that time was giving more of an impetus to my mom to kind of sacrifice and come up and pave a way and get me over here. So I was along with the plan. It it made sense. And I thought that it it would be something that would help me to eventually achieve the dream, you know? So typical immigrant, I tell you, come here with a big dream and lots of drive and just with some guidance along the way, you can pretty much do anything. That's what, that was, I thought, and that's what I actually happened with me. So when did you actually have the desire and passion to pursue med school, right? And at what point were you introduced to dermatology? Yeah. You know, my path was not your typical path by any means. Mm -hmm. When I came to the U.S., I started off at Hunter College because affordable, city university, I could do this. I transferred after a year and a half to NYU where I finished up mostly at the urging of my family physician who said basically that if I was wanting to do medicine, he thought that I would need a big name school behind me. Hmm. So I basically picked out of the hat and I said, okay, there are two schools I heard of when I was in Jamaica. Those are Columbia and NYU. Right. And I applied to both. I got into both. I choose NYU because it was closer to Brooklyn <laughs> and I was going to be commuting to school by right. train. So the whole time though, in, in, in college till then, I was doing dance and studying the sciences. Really? So wow. they were both going neck and neck. So I thought I could seriously do both for a profession. That's mm. how delusional I am <laughs> because I love both. But, you know, at some point, especially when I moved to NYU, I realized that I had to make a choice because both of these are full-time careers that require full-time dedication. Mm -hmm. I couldn't just dabble, not if I wanted to be excellent in either of them. But I I did know all along that I wanted to go to medical school. But then I also, like I said, I knew all along I wanted to be a dancer and I was very talented and I had a lot of natural gifts. But my mother talked a little sense into me, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Mommy said that, you know, you know, both are great options. However, think about the longevity of the life of a dancer. You know, you're going to be pretty much done with that career by the time you hit your mid-30s. Right. Whereas medicine is something you could have for your entire life career. Mm. And with, you know, so said, so done, I actually, you know, I I actually tried out for a scholarship at the Alvin Ailey School in front of Mr. Ailey himself. And I realized at that moment that I really was competing with people who were fully dedicated. Right who took three and four classes a day, not just the one class every evening kind of thing I was trying to do. And those two things helped me to decide that, you know what, just throw your bags all in one pot and go after medicine. So I I pursued that full-time thereafter, just having dance as a fun thing on the side. Now, when I went to medical school, I did not know that I wanted to be a dermatologist. I had actually never met a dermatologist in my lifetime 
never been to one as a child. It just wasn't in my lexicon at all. I was just thinking medicine, general medicine, you know, and let's see where that takes me. Now, medical school is supposed to expose you to all the different specialties available, and you're, you're supposed to then feel out what feels right for you and then pursue that. And all the way through my four years in medical school, I never actually heard the word dermatology nor anything mm. until I was just getting ready to graduate. So, it's, you know, I'd done an externship in Jamaica for like two months. Then I came back and it was a month away from graduation. And they said we should do a rotation where we actually spend two week increments in different specialties that were outpatient specialties, meaning clinic-based. Right. I did two weeks of ophthalmology, two weeks of an emergency room type setting, and then I did two weeks of dermatology. And for the first time in all of my career in, in, in medical school, the lights came on. They mm. literally came on. I was excited by what these people did in a clinic. You know, it was outpatient. It was very happy. It was both a visual uh, specialty as well as a surgical one. And I knew that I liked surgical procedural types of specialties. Mm. But unfortunately, I also realized that dermatology was one of the most competitive specialties to get into. Yeah. And I was by no means prepared to apply for a position because I'd not done any of the research. I'd not kissed up to enough people, basically, <laughs> or, you know, paved the path right. to show that I was interested and make myself competitive. So even though I love dermatology, it wasn't something I applied for at that point. I actually had applied for general internal medicine. And I had matched in my number one choice location. I was on my way back to New York to do that training. So what I did was I decided to just expose myself to as much of the dermatology as I could once I was in New York and try to get attention, you know, so that I could then apply later. Mm. And that's what I did. I mean, for to do dermatology, the training is usually that you do one year of a general specialty like internal medicine or pediatrics or surgery, but only for one year. Because I wasn't prepared to apply, I did three years, the full internal medicine residency. So I'm both an internist and now also a dermatologist because wow. I did the complete training way more than I needed to, but it's what I needed to do in order, you know, to validate my position and make it such that I could compete. Right. And so in my head, I thought, you know what, when I apply for my dermatologist spot, I'm going to think of it as my subspecialty. Everybody else <laughs> is applying to cardiology and nephrology and pulmonology and all this stuff. I didn't like any of those things. I said, I'm going to apply for dermatology and make that my specialty, my subspecialty. And, you know, it wasn't easy getting in, but I did get in. And I got in right here in New York. So I was able to stay in New York and train and finish and get closer to realizing my dream. Great. Love it's that. a total long shot, though, man. I, I was like the most unlikely to get a spot when I looked at, you know, the, the comparative applications, but I was thought to be um, a good applicant because of my background in internal medicine. Right. And because of my drive, I did a lot of research while I was in um, my medical training and got, you know, a lot of bench time with uh, dermatologists and I wrote papers and I did everything that I was supposed to have done in medical school, <laughs> you know, just in order to catch up. So it all worked um, out in the end, right? Yeah, man. It was, and, you know, once I started in the residency, I realized it was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to today, you are now an authority and a go-to in your field, right? But, you know, you, you, you also began your own business some 20 plus years ago. 
And I'm crazy. That's why I did that. <laughs> <laughs> you're now a seasoned business owner, right? But yeah, man. <laughs> as you touched on a minute ago, I'm looking at your profile. You went to med school and you probably yeah. didn't have the business or the marketing education experience to start a business back then. So, Zero. I, you know, I'd love to talk about the challenges of starting a business. As you shared with me, you had no money, no formal business plan, no business training. <laughs> I'm a kamikaze man, just jumping. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. Part of my personality is that I immerse myself in situations and I immediately feel like I belong and I just start acting the part. Nice. And, you know, when I, it's just, that's a part of my personality. It's a good and a bad probably, but it's worked out well in this situation. When I finished my training in dermatology, I wanted to work in Manhattan. My life was, you know, Manhattan, lower Manhattan specifically. I lived in the West Village. I socialized in lower Manhattan with people, you know, that in the arts, a lot of them. Right. And I tried to get a job in Manhattan, but no one would hire me. And I would later find out that it was because I was seen as some sort of a threat. They, they actually thought that because there were no other black dermatologists around that I was going to be somewhat too popular, you know, to work for somebody else in their practice. So I was going to take some of their, mm. their sunshine. Basically, right. I was going to come cloud them up a bit. Right. So I, I was hired finally in Queen by a group of, a Jewish group, actually, a whole group of seven Jewish men and me wow. to work in this practice that was in Queens. And um, I liked the fact that they allowed me just to do whatever the hell I wanted. They never got in the way of the way I practiced. They just made it possible. They made all the, you know, got me staffing and did all that stuff. But what I realized is that, you know, a year after being there, I was getting antsy because it wasn't really my cup of tea, I guess is the word. It wasn't my type of neighborhood. It wasn't my kind of, the people that I was hoping that I'd be taking care of and the things I wanted to be doing. I wasn't getting to do those things there. Right. And I didn't really like how the practice was run. It was very much like a mill, you know, mm. tons and tons of people booked every day, like a little, like a clinic, like a corner clinic. <laughs> and I, I, I'm just, I, I mean, I like nice things and I like things that are orderly. Right. And it just was a little too haphazard and quashy. That's the best word. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided that, you know, I could just take what I've learned here in terms of running a practice because you don't know any of that when you leave medical school. They don't teach you anything about like even how to work on a billing sheet and how to hire staff or anything. Mm. I was learning that while I was there. I was learning so about what it was to, like to, right. yeah, what, what kind of people you need. You know, you need a front desk, you need a medical staff, you need this amount of equipment, you need everything that was necessary. I was learning that in that year. But I also yeah. was a very independent type of thinker and I knew how I liked things and I couldn't tell someone else how to run their practice to make me happy. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in Manhattan, but I couldn't afford to be in Manhattan, I thought. But one day I got this interesting phone call from a, a South African guy who was a very charismatic uh, internal medicine doctor who, you know, he got on the phone and he's in his very thick South African accent. He was like, uh, Rosemary, I, I heard about you. I, I heard you were really good. And, you know, we're starting this space down in Soho and we, we wanted someone to join us as a dermatologist. I'm, you know, I'm forming this multi-specialty group and, you know, you should come and meet me. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. I never, I don't know how you found me, but absolutely. I live in the West <laughs> Village. Soho is right my cup of tea. That's where I am all the time anyway. 
So I went down to meet him one day, and it was the funniest thing. I walk into the space, and it's this gallery-type space, totally my speed, like beautiful, high ceilings, you know, the whole thing with art everywhere. I'm like, whoa, this is cool. I walked in, and there's this crazy, wild-haired man who walks towards me, and clearly this is the person I'm there to meet (laughs) with. And he he looks at me, he goes, oh, my God, you're perfect. You're perfect. (laughs) Look at you. Oh, my God. I'm like, what the hell is this? Is this like a go-see for a modeling assignment or something? (laughs) It turns out that, you know, he's an eccentric, which is perfect. I love that. Uh But he thought that I was basically the perfect look, the perfect type of person to be a part of this group he was trying to put together. Mm. And having met him, I was able to then start my own practice in a space that was multi-specialty, where it looked as though we were part of a group, but in fact, it was a cooperative where we all put our own expenses, but to the outside world, it looked like we were this Mm. big multi-specialty group. So that's how I was able to start My practice, I started basically with like some disposable equipment because I wasn't sure it was going to work. You know, I took like two sessions a week. I said, this is probably what I can afford. Let me see how this works. But I bought things that if it didn't work out, I could throw them away and say, oh, well, you know, (laughs) so c'est la vie. But um, I was able to use my little handwritten business plan because I didn't even know you were supposed to make a business plan. I just kind of wrote some stuff out and I'm a very organized person. So maybe what I was doing was really a business plan, but it didn't have that technical name. I hadn't figured out the math and how much it would cost to do anything. I took a loan of $5,000 from a friend of mine, a short-term loan, just so I could buy my disposable equipment (laughs) and have operating expenses for like, I don't know, a few months till I could see whether I was going to have any patients at all. And I relied on this doctor who was an internal medicine doctor to send me referrals. And one referral became, you know, 20, which became 200. (laughs) And it was crazy. I mean, I became so popular so fast that Within like four and a half years in that space, I couldn't work out of a a group space anymore. I was too popular. I had too many patients coming in and I was kind of overwhelming the space, you know, for the other specialists who were there. Right. Good problems to have. Great problems to have, yeah. (laughs) Unanticipated, I might say. I mean, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing what I thought felt right. And given that it was my own practice, I could do whatever I wanted. I could dress how I wanted. I could work the hours I wanted. And it was great. And I didn't realize I was onto something so good until I ran out of space there, at which time I went looking for my own space and was fortunate enough to find a a spot in NoHo, which is about six blocks away from where I was. So I didn't anticipate losing any patients really in the transfer. Mm. And that was my space and is my space. I've expanded it since then. And here I am, what is it, like 15 years later. And it's a, a big 2,000 square foot office with, it's like full service, like everything you could want. There are three, you know, two physicians, one esthetician, a full medical assisting staff, front office, like the whole shebang. And whenever I pause and I look at what I've built, <laughs> it's really amazing to me even. I mean, people say to me all the time, you know, they come in and they're like, oh my God, I didn't expect it to be this. Right. That's when I step back and I I look and see what I do. But when I'm in it, I don't do that. I don't see it. I'm just like driven and I have these visions of what can be and I don't hear the word no. You know, I just like see possibilities and I just figure ways to make these things happen. So that's been kind of how it's worked out. 
So, you know, I know you started your business back in the late 90s and, and being in Manhattan, how did 9-11 affect being in that space? Yeah, it's interesting that question because the year that I left my old space to go to my new space was 2001. Wow. I opened my practice in the new space in August, mid-August of 2001. And in September of 2001, I was shut out of my space for a good two to three weeks because the entire area was shut down below 14th Street and I'm on 4th Street. So I was immediately put out of business. Even when we were back in the space, you would smell, I mean, that horrible smell that permeated Manhattan, especially lower Manhattan and Brooklyn for months and months after 9-11. How do you keep positive and committed during times like that to down times and challenging moments like that? And that was that was a, a huge blow because how do I keep motivated? I'm not sure. You call on, on your inner strengths, you call on religion, you know, friends, fellow business owners, just anybody you think of who can relate to the situation. New Yorkers were walking around in a daze. I mean, we'd all just kind of, you just see people walking, just staring off into nowhere. Like what, what happened? What, what was that? <laughs> look what you look down. If you stand on uh, Lafayette where my office is and you look South, normally you look and you see those two beautiful towers, but it was really strange to stand in the middle of Lafayette or in the middle of Broadway and look South and not see them just right. seeing you know, smoke Rubble. or just emptiness right. and smelling that horrendous, horrendous smell. Mm. But, you know, New York is a, is a tough place. It really is a tough place to live. It's a tough place to survive. But these people here are solid because they're inherently tough from the, the lives they live here. You know, being able to make it in the city is not easy. I think that kind of put us all in a position where we were probably better capable of tolerating this devastation right. and bouncing back from it. I'm not sure how we got through it, really. I really don't know. I worried for months and months after about patients of mine because I had a ton of people who, you know, they came from the Wall Street area. And inevitably, some of them worked in the World Trade Center. I knew of a couple who, who passed away, but I'm sure I didn't know of everyone who passed away. Right. It, was, it was a really weird time. It was like ghost town. Mm-hmm. And there was this thick layer of, of soot and white debris all over everything you know for a good two two miles away yeah yeah one of the things that i actually saw a lot of afterwards were all these people who were mentally affected by it who had lived down there they were coming to see me in the office with all these skin conditions that they were convinced were related to having either lived or breathed the air and being exposed to the debris down there that was not a fun time because everybody was you know convinced that anything that was wrong with them was because of their exposures while they were down working in the area or living in the area. Right. Not fun. Wow. That's a difficult difficult life. Yeah. Different times. Yeah, man. You know, fast forward to today. I'd love to talk for a minute about your day-to-day and what you're doing today that has helped you to set yourself apart and to continue to fuel you for the success that you're experiencing now. It's interesting. I I look at myself often when I'm in, let's say, a convention, a dermatology convention, mm-hmm. and I look at my peers, even my other Black peers who are now, there are many more of us, 
I remember when I graduated, I was the first black person to graduate from my dermatology residency wow. program. What a shame. <laughs> that's <laughs> not a shame. That's, 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 that, I mean, it's know, wonderful. You, you set, okay, you're a trailblazer, right? <laughs> I'm I, a trailblazer. Absolutely. You paved the way. <laughs> but it's, it's something nah, to think you. that it took them that long to have one. But now there are many more. Right. And when I'm in a room with, with these other, not just the, the people of color, but, you know, just all dermatologists, I look and see just how different I am in many ways. Mm -hmm. Because outside of just having the same skin color, my story is so different. Yes. Coming from this strong arts background, this very diverse background. I didn't tell you that I was also a fashion model because, of course, right? <laughs> Isn't there lots of time in my life to go also do a fashion modeling career? <laughs> and I worked in sales. And I was like Love doing it. everything, you know? So I look at the people that I competed with to get to where I am. And I look at them now and I think, God, most of these guys were just doing, you know, they were doing medicine. They were doing research. They were doing everything to get to this spot. But it was very, very focused on just being that, being a scientist. So I know that my life is much more exciting and the, the, more colorful the path right. has been. Yes. And I do believe that that set me up for being a set apart in my career right now. Because as a dermatologist who is doing a lot of cosmetic dermatology right now, I realized that my very strong artistic twist or tilt right. gives me a certain eye. Like when I'm doing, you know, cosmetic fillers or Botox or anything that is more of a beautification type of thing. Right. The way that I perceive beauty, the way that I, the aesthetic that I'm trying to bring through affords me the ability to just, you know, I, I choose to make people look a way that they don't look strange. Right. What I see as beauty is is really natural beauty it's not to make people look fake or look like everybody look the same because it's like painting by numbers kind of situation where right. you know you treat every patient the same way i actually feel that my artistic background has lent itself very nicely to what i do now in my career and i attract a, a lot of the people who are from these careers that i've dabbled in over the years you know all the arts and the the music and the dance everything so fashion become part of your culture it's, it is. Yeah. And, and, and the, the way that I socialize, I don't socialize with other physicians. My socialization is pretty much in the arts. I'm wow. at the theater all the time. I'm going to jazz performances. I go to the opera. I go to ballet. I go to, you know, I got the dance hall concert. I, go, <laughs> <laughs> I mix it up. Everything. I mean, anything. The spoken word, things to do with beauty. It's just, you know, film. I'm all over the place. And I, I realize that it's been a part of me all along. It's just now I'm really blending it into the life I live. And it's, it makes for a very, very exciting, interesting life. Wow. So listen, you know, I love all these gems. You're dropping some serious nuggets of wisdom. You know, I know we've got some folks that are, are listening to you, like myself, you know, working mm -hmm. a full-time job, trying to grow a business as a side hustle. Right, um, before right. taking a big leap and they're still in the early stages of building their businesses right mm -hmm. could you maybe talk about some of the processes or practices for us to maybe look at and to follow as we as we navigate right some of some of the rough years you know i i can go back to when i started mm -hmm. you know the way that i formulated my plan to do this was like i said on paper right i would literally write down what I thought was necessary to get through a day, right. a day in the life of a dermatologist. 
what equipment do I seem to need every single day? You know, the papers that I need, the, the, the utensils, that an exam table, like the basics to make it possible for me to do a day. That's how I started. And then I would then go out and I researched the costs of these things, you know, okay, so that's how much it costs to get that. And then I'd factor backwards. I'd say, okay, then if that's what it costs, then maybe I can afford to get two. So you're a reverse engineer what you needed. Yes. Right? I started by looking at what the absolute bare essentials that I needed right. to operate without feeling hindered. So you're not sinking your whole ship <laughs> if it never no, worked man, out, right? No, man. No, I started really small and right. simple. Yeah. I needed to be able to take care of one patient and have every piece of equipment I needed to take care of that one patient. Mm. So, you know, if you need gauze and need alcohol swab and you need a needle and you need a, a, a thing... You know, I, I went through and I wrote all of that down on paper, and then I worked backwards and looked at companies where um, you could get these pieces of equipment, mostly from the company. You know, when I worked with that dermatology group, I asked them, you know, to tell me where you would buy such and such and such. Right. And the people who bought the things there, they said, oh, yeah, here's a company that you can talk to. And so I did it that way. And then as I started to make money, because, I mean, I literally had maybe two patients the first week I was out. I would sit there and twiddle my thumbs right. for days and like say, my God, was this a big mistake? <laughs> and by the way, another thing is I did not just jump in full force at the mm -hmm. beginning. I started by taking on two shifts per week mm. in this space because you're paid your rent based on how many shifts you are going to use. And the other days I was still working my day job, <laughs> as you call it, so that I had a solid salary coming in so I could actually even afford to buy the pieces of equipment that I needed. Right. I didn't just quit my day job and go jump in and say, okay, let me w jump and see how it worked out. I did the other way. I was a I'm cautious, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I, I think things through very well. I, I try to think of all of the things that could go wrong right. and make sure that I had things in, measures in place to protect me if, if it was to go wrong. So my protection at that time was if this don't work out, well, I only bought disposable equipment anyway. And I had an out clause in the in the contract for the the, tent, the the rental, and I still had my day job. I was still you know working at least part time, and I could pay my rent. Right. right. So it didn't feel like that much of a risk to me. And so as things got better, I then ramped up. You know, every every month or so, I'd buy another piece of something that I thought I needed. Right. Or instead of having three pieces of one, one instrument, I'd buy another two so I didn't have to clean them so often. Or right. Little things like that. But I built up very slowly and very right. cautiously. Right. As the concept was proven and, and you see the business coming in. Love that. Yeah. Love that. Love that. And I did do a bit of networking too, right. you know. So right. you can't just operate in a vacuum where you open the shop and then you expect You're people waiting. must come. Right, right. I was fortunate in that the internist who was the owner of the lease on the space, that same guy I imitated earlier. Right. <laughs> he was and is one of the busiest internists in uh, Soho. Wow. He had been there for years. He took care of pretty much all the artists and people who lived in downtown Manhattan before it was what it is today. And he dealt a lot in bartering and, you know, like old school kind of stuff. Right. And I was able to kind of slide into that world because he referred them to me and because I did a good job. And I made them like me, they came back and then they send their friends and then they sent their coworkers and their, you know, family. Right. <laughs> That's great. So, that, you know, that, that source. Yeah, it was a good starting point. But then, you know, when we're, we're often given opportunities like this in life, but what you do with the opportunity is very important. You have to 
prove yourself. You know, they can send you anybody in the world, but if you're horrible, you have no bedside manner. You don't seem to care about what you're doing. You don't like people. You don't make them feel comfortable. Why should they come back? So the product, the service, the experience. Absolutely. And I, I was adamant about always keeping quality high because, I, like I said before, one of the reasons I didn't like working for the other group was because it was a mill and I didn't feel worthy. Right. I didn't feel like, you know, like, like it was worthy of me, actually. Right. Sorry, I said right. that incorrectly. So, yeah, I, I, I thought, you know, basically by creating a great experience for people and giving, I, I, I mean, I knew I had the knowledge, you know, I passed my boards. I knew what I was doing. Even though I was young, <laughs> um, I figured, you know, just do good work and the work will speak for itself and people will come. And so said, so done. That's awesome. We haven't spoken much about your true strength and wisdom. You know, before I wrap up today, uh, you know, I'd love to maybe share some of your thoughts on why living a healthy lifestyle and taking care of your skin is so important to you. <laughs> Man, that's at the core of my being. Right. I'm a person who takes care of every aspect of my life, you know, and I'm doing that in the hopes of making it an example to others mm-hmm. because my patients are always asking, Dr. Newton, I want skin like yours. Dr. Newton, <laughs> I want to wear, oh, where you get that clothes? Who cuts your hair? Who? And they, they want to know everything. They want to basically become me. And so I, every day I go in, I have to be on point. Right. But I do it for me as well. I like the feeling of, of being healthy and, and feeling and looking healthy. So, because I know actually that, you know, it starts from the inside. You can't eat crap and expect to have a good product from right, that. Right. Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. I happen to not be someone who eats red meat hmm. just because I don't like it. <laughs> I've never really eaten pork. I never liked it as a child. I don't like it now. I don't like the smell. So that, you know, those type of things that they tell you to eliminate from your diet. You know, I never was part of my diet to begin with. Mm. I'm basically a poultry and seafood kind of girl. But I've also learned about the need to have lots more greens and, you know, vegetables in general in my diet and lots of fruit and lots of water. And that's just part of the way I live. I love eating good food, but I want it to be really good for me as well. Right, right. And those things affect your skin, yes? They absolutely affect your skin. You know, put good in, you get good out. You can't, you know, if you if you eat a lot of things that have a lot of beta carotene and, you know, good B vitamins and all those good greens and the antioxidants, you know, all those berries and stuff, it's amazing. I mean, it's good for every part of your body, good for your heart and absolutely good for your skin. But um, one of the things I usually preach, and I don't like to preach much, but I, I seem to hammer away at this often with my patients, is the need to really have a daily ritual that you you follow for your skin. It does not have to be complicated. Mm. It's just the basics of even cleaning. You know, it's amazing how some people don't wash their faces. They just don't, they don't wash. Mm-hmm. It seems so basic to me. <laughs> but until I started talking to people, I realized people sometimes don't wash often. Right. And they don't wash their hair often. That's a yeah. big yeah, pet yeah. peeve of mine. Like when I'm interviewing someone who comes to me with a scalp condition, you know, I, I talk a lot, by the way, <laughs> when I see people, my, my psych, I didn't tell you, I, did, I was a biology and psychology major in, in college. Oh, yeah. And that psychology part is really at work every single day when I practice, because I really want to get inside people's heads. Right. I want to know how they really live at home, what their routine is, what are you washing with? 
How often do you wash your hair? Do you clean your face before you go to bed? Just basic stuff like that, because it gives me a, an idea of, of them. So and it helps me to better guide them on how I can help them to get the results they're hoping to get when they come to see me. Right. Questions for you around that. Should mm-hmm. we be washing our face multiple times a day? I heard you just say before bed. Should it be a, you know, a morning and evening ritual? And then are there particular cleansers that work best? I am a believer that you should wash your face morning and evening. I don't mean that you have to use soap right? because a lot of people don't want to use soap on their face in the morning. Right. I get it. If you're not someone who's going to bed with products on your skin, you know, whatever those products may be prescribed or just, you know, your anti-aging regimen, mm-hmm. uh, you may not need to wash your face if you didn't sleep with anything on, with soap that is. But I, I would... I think it's kind of important to wash all the sleep out your eyes and, right. <laughs> you know, the crust from around your mouth. The world, <laughs> the world will appreciate it. That's the morning. And then in the evening, I think that's absolutely essential because you've been out in the entire environment during the day. You've had pollution on your skin. You've had your coworkers mouth water on your face when they talk to you and a couple droplets end up on your face. (laughs) You've had everything that you dealt with in your workplace. If you work with chemicals, those chemicals are on your skin. It's, I cannot imagine going to bed without cleansing my face. It's just one of those things I can't, I can't imagine. So at least the very face, you don't have to bathe, but because you're pretty much wearing clothing and covered unless you're a sweater, you may, you know, you, you, you may have to be twice a day if you're a sweater or you're working out. But the, what you choose to use to cleanse is less important to me than just the fact that you do cleanse mm-hmm. somehow. I usually, you know, create regimens for my patients when they come to me. And first I look at what they're using and I see if they're using things that are appropriate. I say, you know, rock on, keep using those. If I think there are things that they could be using that would help them to achieve the goals that they come to me asking for me to help them with, then I'll make suggestions. But it's very variable. It depends on what I'm starting with, what I'm seeing on them, you know, on their skin when I see them. Right. They I'm not married to any one product, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ingleton, I've had so much fun talking to you. You know, before I ask our last question today, I just want to let you know that you are a true inspiration. And I believe that, you know, you need to find a way to share your story more publicly because your journey is is one that can absolutely help, you know, quite a bit. I'm I'm thinking of young women, right, who are needing really? to to be inspired by stories like yours. So I encourage you to keep sharing the story because uh, it truly is very powerful. And wow. I'm extremely <laughs> grateful to you for for sharing your time and your wisdom with our community of trailblazers. And you know, wow. I, I feel like we all just grew from this conversation and. I can't express enough how appreciative I am for having you on. Wow. That's really, really (laughs) nice to hear. You know, when you're in it, you don't really get the the fact that it can have an impact like it does, I guess. Absolutely. You're you're now into 70-something guests. You're episode 70-something. So, you know, I've I've heard quite a bit of stories and I just, there's impact and, you know, in, in, in hearing your story. So I encourage you to keep sharing that journey of yours. And with that said, my last question for today, I'd love to to ask you to share one action our trailblazers hopping off this call should put into action this week to help them blaze their trail. Okay, I'm going to just say basically what's worked for me. Find your dream, plan, and then execute. Nice. Not in any other order. 
Right. Because if I can say one thing about life in general is that I really think anything is possible. My dream was way bigger than I ever, 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 ever thought mm -hmm. that I could achieve. But I did just that. I planned, you know, before I executed. Dream it, plan it, and execute it. You can do it. Love it. Dr. Ingleson, thanks again for being our guest today. My pleasure. This is so fun. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tbpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers. <laughs>